Mistakes are tough. No matter what someone tells you about learning from your mistakes and loving your mistakes and daring to fail gloriously, it doesn't change that mistakes suck. And what do you do when you realize that you've made a mistake? Well, depending on the severity, sometimes you brush it off, but the bigger ones, they tend to just stick with you, and that's part of maturity. Like, for example, when you use three tablespoons of pepper when it's really supposed to be three teaspoons in a recipe, you probably can just kind of shove that off and be like, eh, well, I'll do better next time and I'll pay more attention next time. But what happens when you make a really, really painful mistake, like accidentally lying to a friend or even intentionally lying to a friend and realizing that you've made that mistake later? It hurts. It's painful to realize a mistake, especially when operating your subscription business. Putting time and resources into a project only to realize you didn't get the results you hoped for is occasionally those small potatoes, but when it comes from a really, really big company-wide swing and a miss, it could be a death flow. If your goal is hyper-growth and you only marginally increase the bottom line, heads will roll, metaphorically speaking. But what if there was a way to avoid these kinds of mistakes and get on the right track to growth? Well, it would help if you had the advice from the guy who wrote the book about predictable revenue, and that's Aaron Ross, the co-CEO of PredictableRevenue.com, and also the writer of the book Predictable Revenue, as well as other SaaS and subscription literature that goes like a wildfire throughout the SaaS and subscription community. There are some mistakes you can't avoid, but hopefully with what Aaron is about to share, you'll have what it takes to reduce those blunders significantly. All that and more coming up next. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, Aaron Ross dives deep on the levers to scale, why everyone should have the skill to sell, the secret to nailing the niche, dissecting the ideal customer, why most companies stall, and the anatomy of a successful cold call. Aaron Ross, co-CEO of PredictableRevenue.com. I think most people, if they've heard of me, have known me for the book Predictable Revenue. Yeah. Um, also wrote a sequel called From Impossible to Inevitable. Father of nine, going on ten children. <laughs> Always awesome. good times, good times. Always good Never times. a dull moment. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Even when I wish there could be a dull moment. Yeah, that's all right. You'll get away like a little bit, especially as they grow older and all that kind of fun stuff. And so, yeah. So our company is PredictableRevenue.com. We help other companies accelerate their outbound sales so they can grow faster, be more predictable. And we do that through... We call ourselves the outbound success company. If companies want to do outbound selling or prospecting, whether they want outsourcing help or to build their own team, we can help them do it right the first time. That's super cool. Yeah, I, the book, I mean, I'm sure you hear this all the time. It was the foundation of our early sales team and still is. You know, we still structure it. Which is really funny to hear because, you know, yeah. when you're a kid, you never really think, you know what? I want to be a sales author or a sales yeah, yeah, yeah. person when I grow up. Yeah. So I always have these kind of weird moments around, yeah, I guess I did do that, but I never see myself as a sales yeah. something. Where do you think that came from? I know you were in sales, obviously, and we were all in sales on some level, but what was We the, should be all in sales on some level. It's a yeah. life skill. I didn't appreciate that, how much of a life skill it is till you know, late in life. Yeah. Or if you want to accomplish anything in life, whether it's get a promotion or start a nonprofit or start a company or recruit people or... You need to be able to sell at some level. Were you always in tech? Basically, how did you get here? You know, uh, I was really pilot? was always in tech at some point because even as a kid, I loved computers. Mm -hmm. I did programming in high school, coding is the pre-internet, and then engineering in college. At some point, you know, I think the way my mind tends to work is more as an engineer. Mm -hmm. And 
if I fast forward a little bit, I had a company that failed. Right? We raised venture, you know, millions in venture capital back in 99, 2000. Equipmentleasing.com, which became Lease Exchange, went out of business after a couple of years. One of the reasons, one of the main reasons, there's more than one, was that I, as the CEO, didn't know sales, like professional sales. And like, well, if I'm going to start another company, I got to know sales. Yeah. So where better to do that than to do sales at Salesforce? Yeah. And so that was where I think sort of my, I had a chance, I didn't know, I just want to learn sales, a chance to find a place where I could apply the engineering, which was more my background, to something I was just learning. It yeah. didn't have much to it at that point. That's really cool. You were at Salesforce for a while, right? Four years. I mean, you were leading teams at that point, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I started at the bottom yeah. because I'm like, fuck it, I just then had to learn. So one of the things I, people ask about, or I, at least I, actually maybe they don't ask, I just tell them they should. Yeah. I volu- the advice I volunteer is, you know, like find a job where you can learn what you need to learn, get paid to learn. Yeah. You know, don't let your ego get in the way of, you know, getting your hands in the weeds to do the job you need to learn. Sure. So I was answering the 800 line for Salesforce. And from being, you know, CEO of an internet company, which of course failed, but whatever, to um, answering the 800 line and getting website leads. Because that was the only job they had. I'm like, you know what, whatever. I, I want to learn it. I'm going to do it That's, and do sales there. And I'll just kind of figure it out. And I did. I saw an opportunity in Salesforce to, I just saw this problem. They didn't have enough pipeline at the big companies. And I'm like, I can do this better than what they're trying. There's this kind of scattered approach to prospecting here and all there. And you know, really like two, three or four months of focus and came up with the system. So that was really where, um, you know, in hindsight, I didn't start with kind of an engineering approach. But again, it kind of fell into sales through life experience and finding out what didn't work and what I felt like I really needed. Yeah. I never had an interest in sales. Yeah. I never had a passion for sales. I had a passion, I think, for entre- entrepreneurship. And it just so happens, you, I don't think you can be a great entrepreneur or as great as if you don't know sales sure. at some level. Mm. And I see this again and again where entrepreneurs often, especially in Silicon Valley, have this mentality that, you know, I just want to create this cool thing yeah. and people come and buy it and I just make money coding. And it's, made, it's worked for enough people that's created a story that's possible. Sure. But for most companies... They don't realize that it's not that easy. Yeah. And to actually make real money, yeah. you have to, in some level, sell. Sell yourself, sell the company, whether you call it marketing or selling. Sure. And there's ways to embrace that. You know, I think that some of the best salespeople in the world were Mother Teresa, right? Elon yeah. Musk, John F. Kennedy. And to let go of the, the fear of selling. Yeah. I think a lot of the, the resistance to selling comes from this, I don't want to, I don't want to sell people. I don't want to push myself on them. I don't want to be kind of like that yucky manipulative used car salesperson. But when you realize that's a skill you need to know or to help people, like to help convince people there's a better way to do what they're doing and you can do it with integrity, you know, it's, it's something you need to know how to do if you want to accomplish anything in life. Yeah. So once you get over that and you realize that that entrepreneur or the, the geek or engineer selling is a skill, if you learn it, you can get the results you want. It's, I think, easier for people to appreciate it. And I know I did, but I have a passion for it now because I know so much about it yeah. and I can see how it affects everything, but didn't start there. Yeah. Like, hmm, sales, like, what's that? Yeah. Well, there's also, there's the, oh, I just want to hack and it'll sell itself. Right. And then on the other side, there's the, let's just rack and stack reps, you know, who cares about code, you know, any of that kind of yep. stuff. Yeah. Just close them, close them, close them, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. That gets exactly. into the Glenn Gary, Glenn Bross, like style closing, that yep. kind of stuff, which is interesting. What's kind of cool is like, I think that, you know, you've, you've kind of, 
productize like all that knowledge and like evolve that knowledge over time too to like make you know folks really good at sales and it's kind of cool because you're selling something that helps people sell and so you can very naturally like you know have those feedback loops but i'm kind of curious about something you mentioned was that you know scaling is a should be a very deliberate type task in an organization like growing especially with sales like what happens and how do you figure out like you know, nailing that niche and all that kind of fun stuff before you end up scaling. Yeah, well, it's interesting because Predictable Revenue, the book came out 2011, and there's a bunch of years, probably five, about five years between that book and the next book, which is called From Impossible to Inevitable. A lot of syllables. Yeah. Uh, And I did that with Jason Jason Lemkin, right, of Sastra. And the the one chapter that I knew needed to be in there is the first one called Nail a Niche. Mm -hmm. Or Canada, they go, it's Nail a Niche. The American, because that was the part missing from predictable revenue for people. Mm-hmm. So predictable revenue came out. A lot of people made incredible strides with uh, their sales design, you know, making money, especially through outbound prospecting. But I noticed that when they struggled, because, again, I've been consulting around this for now a long time since Salesforce. I left Salesforce 10 years ago or plus. Usually the reason a company struggled to grow was because they hadn't nailed a niche. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? So it means that, most companies get started and they get to a few hundred thousand dollars or maybe a few million dollars through organic growth, right? Friends, family, customers, customer referrals. Um, they might be posting on their social. It's kind of like they're using their networks. And the customers coming to them have, there's some prior trust. Like they heard about you, they saw your brand, a friend told them. And so they're really willing to give you a lot of leeway for you to explain yourself. Like they're, they're looking for a reason to, to learn about you. They're like open to your explanations to information. And so let's say they're saying, yeah, sure, I'll take a 20-minute demo, like whatever. I won't even bother looking at the website because Bob said you're great. Right, so you get to this, we'll call it a million dollars. And you should focus on these places where the relationships and the trust and the brand have helped you. But at some point, uh, you plateau with that, that organic growth. And maybe you plateau at a million or a couple million or 200,000. But it doesn't keep going forever. Look, okay, there's Dropbox, but we're not all Dropbox. So... The challenge then is entrepreneurs don't realize how hard it is then to go from selling to people where they kind of know you, they're giving you a bunch of leeway, to selling to people who've never heard of you or don't want to know about you and are just busy. And we call it this trust gap. So that's this new skill of companies to know how to intrigue someone right, who's busy doing something else to at least get them to pay some attention. So, for example, with cold email or even cold calls, Right, not, they're not going to give you 20 minutes. They might give you five seconds or one second or 30 seconds. So how do you take all this messaging or information that you've been sharing with people and you're used to being able to take 20 minutes to explain it and you have a few seconds to like, fit into this little slice of their attention? And people really struggle with that because it's hard. So one of the clues when you're ready to grow is that you, have, you start to be able to get these companies that you're not dependent on the relationship to close. Right? Either they come in from who knows where, or you're able to get them to some cold way to approach them, like maybe even at a conference, and you walk up in person, and you're like, hey, how's it going? But you're able to kind of find and then interest and sell some of these customers who don't really know you very well. Say you get 10 of them. I think Jason Lemkin came up with this rule, which is basically feel like you're on track, you've nailed a niche once you've got 10 customers who just kind of came in, and the product stood on its own. The success was not dependent on the relationship. Yeah. They just found you out of the ether, or maybe you did some cold outbound selling, and you're able to get 10. You're like, okay, you got something there that you have promised to be able to grow. Mm. And because once you can reach out to people who don't know you, whether it's through 
outbound selling, whether it's through outbound marketing, then you've kind of opened up your markets. If you can do that, you can go after anybody. So that's when we can really start to grow faster. You've, so that's kind of nailed the niche. You really know exactly who needs you, not where you're nice to have, what they care about, and how to kind of communicate with them to get them interested. Yeah. I'm curious, what do you think of ABM? Like this kind of world. Yeah, yeah, it's just kind of interesting because it's, I just had that thought because like, you know, predictable revenue, like talked a lot about like organizational structure, like how do you take care of things? And then ABM's kind of been the, we don't do outbound, we do ABM, which is, it's really outbound, but it's, you know, it's like, I'm just curious your take on it. Well, you know, back at Salesforce a long time ago, everything we did was, at least on the outbound, outbound side was account-based marketing or account-based selling. So a lot of it, it's evolved, but... Now there's a category because there's software. People want to sell stuff and more power to them. And it's interesting. We have some updates, like case studies around ABM going into the impossible book, like Mm -hmm. an edition. But I think is still there's more, you know, account-based marketing in principle is the way to go for most companies. If you're targeting companies that um, are not all kinds of small businesses, right? They're any kind of size, like maybe a few hundred or a few thousand employees and up. Is part of your marketing or part of your growth approach, you need to at least think in an account-based way. Yeah. Whether you use software or not, who cares? Like that, yeah. a lot of software still has a lot of promise, but you know, big fans of like Engageo, and there's a lot of companies out there, and John Miller, like yeah. that's who we interviewed for the book. So I think it's really more the principle of, you wanna know who the right customer, like who's your ideal customer? All growth really goes back to these really simple principles. Who needs you the most, right? Who's your ideal customer? You know, where do you find them? How do you get them interested? How do you have a conversation and sort of move them into a sales cycle? That's it. Again, whether it's social, whether it's you know outbound cold email, whether it's conferences, that's really it. Companies don't do enough of this. Like, be that really specific. Here's our ideal customers. These accounts, and here's one of the breakdowns I see all the time. Let's say there's a hundred accounts, and we're going to go after them. And if we have outbound prospectors, right? We have marketing that can do things with them. We have outbound prospectors. And the prospectors don't take an outbound sales approach. They're used to just calling, hey, let's just call people in these accounts. We'll just email people in these accounts. They're not really taking a methodical approach to say, here's Bank of America. And let's map out all the divisions of Bank of America. And let's look at all the people in all those divisions of Bank of America, the decision makers and the influencers. And let's try to reach out to them. Let's try to go use the referral approach going top down. Let's call their customer support lines to get like basic information. Let's maybe go visit a branch. Like you're sort of really going deep into these accounts one at a time or a handful at a time. That doesn't happen enough. We have a lot of great technologies now to, for example, automate outbound prospecting, like sending emails or making calls. But the downside is it's made it easy for people to skip over kind of the thoughtfulness of who the right accounts are. Like people get, companies get into such a rush to get a list and like start emailing, start calling. They don't really slow down to say, who really are these best accounts? And how are we going to go after them in a thoughtful way? Again, the bigger the account, the more thoughtfulness you need. The smaller the account, mass email away or mass direct mail away or whatever, mass call away. And so it's this, how do you segment your different accounts? Take the, to really take the time to say who your ideal customers are and like, what are they by segment? And how are we going to approach them by segment? And what is a prospector going to do per account to really, I say, go deep? I think a lot of it gets lost in the rush. Yeah. So you're like, come on, come on, get those appointments, get those appointments. Because yeah. it takes emails, time. It takes more, more time people than people are willing, willing to spend. It can take, you know, honestly, months. 
those principles that are like so important and, and it all comes back to is that where when you see companies stall, like whether it's at a million or even 10 million, like is yeah. that really why they're stalling? They're not That's going one, back yeah, to Yeah, because one example is companies that are so in a rush to, let's say, smaller company under 10 million, such in a rush to grow, right? They're hiring um, salespeople, spending money on salespeople. I mean, by the way, Salesforce did this back when I was there, like hiring, spending money on salespeople, spending money on marketing. Nothing's working because they haven't, they didn't nail a niche. In this case, at Salesforce, they were going up market to the enterprise, right? hiring expensive field salespeople. But a lot of the marketing programs weren't working to generate leads from big companies, yeah. right? Until we did outbound prospecting. So that's one example. You know, another is when you have an outbound prospecting team and you know you're getting lots of appointments, but the quality's not there. They're not the appointments, you know, they're not moving to the sales pipeline. Like salespeople even might be accepting the appointments, but they don't go anywhere. Mm. Really common you have this kind of quality issue because there usually it means that the management team is so gung-ho to get more like the amount of appointments and the amount of opportunities, and they're not as gung-ho on the quality that they don't understand there's this quality issue. People are just kind of going through the motions to get the metrics up. And three years, six or nine months later, they're like, where's the revenue? Like, oh, whoops. We thought it was on track, but you know, it wasn't because we needed 20 appointments a month. In reality, you probably should have had 10. Yeah. So here's one example. Like if you, you demand 20 appointments a month from your one prospector, or do you demand 10 qualified ones? You always want to have you know, like the smaller number that's more qualified if you really want to end up with more revenue at the end of the quarter, end of the year. Yeah. So it's the the quality first over the quantity. It's just so hard to mentally get on board sometimes with that, right? Because you, oh, yeah, you kind of intuitively good. know it, but you're like, well, volume means like there will be a better percentage or, or not as better percentage, but it'll convert yeah. you know more folks theoretically. Yeah. Well, in outbound, there's a lot of subjectivity, mm-hmm. right? Because the nature of have this appointment, talk to them, you know, I'm going to bring in a, a salesperson. We'll call it qualified. What does that really mean? Mm-hmm. You know, is that consistent across if there's like five or 10 or 50 people doing this? Yeah. So there's a lot of subjectivity and there's a lot of opportunity for inconsistencies. Sure. And a lot of opportunity for people to, it's not really gaming the system, but one example, I'm a salesperson. Let's say you're prospecting for me. You're working hard. You're getting me appointments. I'm like, you know, and I'm getting some appointments that aren't that great, but you know, you're working so hard for me. I might just do you a favor. Yeah. And I, my intentions are good. Mm-hmm. And yet I end up like the data, the pipeline is off. The pipeline says we have 40 qualified appointments. We really don't. Mm. We have 30 or 20. Sure. So in the short term, I feel like I won, but the long term, I can't trust the pipeline. I don't get the revenue and everybody loses. Yeah. So I think having done this so many years and seen so many of the situations, it's easier for me to say, even at the beginning, either you got to, you know, do fewer or better or like be really strict with your quality control. Like you need an audit process with every single opportunity. Yeah. And I learned that at Salesforce with Mark, yeah. for example, because he was always a skeptic of the whole outbound program. That's interesting. Yeah, it's like fascinating because we just we just went through this with one of our new products, like defining or really redefining a good op. Because you don't want to make it so complicated that it's like, you know, so tough to like really understand because it's a little bit of a higher volume. But it's also one of those things where you want to kind of nail it. And we're probably going to update it, you know, every quarter yeah, essentially. Yeah. yeah, and people forget that you know, inbound opportunity qualification criteria should be different than qualification criteria for outbound opportunities. Sure. Here's uh, this interesting thing we see. Jason, I think, calls inbound dependency. Mm. So when I call it, there's the companies are too successful at inbound, mm. right? So 
you get this company growing from inbound leads, however that works, they get to 5 million, 20 million, 50 million. At some point, they all decide, hey, we need to do outbound too. Because if you have investors, investors are going to want you to grow as fast as you can. And you can't do that with just one program, right? Did you know that uh, Facebook does outbound? I didn't know that. Is that just for like workplace or what is it for? Yeah. Or, okay. Like what's the most famous inbound company you can think of? Oh, probably HubSpot. And I'm, I know Big that. outbound. I know they do right. outbound. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think they were trying to hide that back in the day. They like, used to. Maybe they don't now. But like SurveyMonkey does that. That's surprising. SurveyMonkey does outbound. Right? Yeah, yeah. Facebook does outbound. I mean, obviously Google, you know, Marketo. So I think, again, there's this kind of myth that if we just have great product, we won't have to sell. We won't have to do outbound, which is not true. At some point you do. And when you start doing outbound, and if you have a sales team that's used to getting these leads coming in and like qualifying the leads and doing the demo and closing them, and now they have to do these appointments where they have to kind of sell, right? It's not someone who's saying, hey, show me what you got. It's like, like who are you? There's this game culture shock. So, you know, how do you, it's like a different approach, a different mentality, and they can adapt, but it's not like the outbound opportunities are different, right? Where you have outbound really is about being proactive. Yeah. And inbound is reactive. The other one's like bad, it's just they're different. And so there can be a, the addition of outbound to inbound can be a culture shock to people, whether it's on the marketing side, also the metrics are different. Like, okay, here's a, here's a neat tactic that lots of people get wrong. If you use salesforce.com or some other CRM that has leads, and accounts and contacts, okay? The leads tab is for marketing and for inbound leads. It's not for outbound prospecting. Unless you sell to like really small one-person shops. Sure. Prospecting should be done through the accounts and contacts area, right? Because you have, you're targeting accounts and there's multiple people in those accounts and yeah. you can't see everything going on unless you use accounts. Metrics are different. The process is different. It's two different, two different beasts in a way. So there's too much lumping. Yeah. All right. Not just in the jobs, right? Inbound SDR needs to be different than outbound SDR. Don't mix those. Yeah. The rhythms are different. The, the, the way you use a Salesforce or CRM is different. The metrics are different. So that's, again, really common mistake is people don't specialize enough to really break out that whole inbound lead channel and inbound SDR role and the outbound channels and outbound SDR role. What's the anatomy of a really good cold outbound call of a call yeah outbound cold call so unpredictable revenue the podcast when i got interviewed they were like oh we're gonna do a mock call i don't know if i'll do that with you here because i don't know you've probably done enough of those in your life but when you are coaching someone on that like what is a really good like that first Um, five to 20 seconds so first actually really important there's different kinds of cold calls you can make Mm -hmm. and i think that can get lost in the shuffle there's that classic cold call i'm gonna call you and hey bob how you doing i'm like yeah but you can do research calls Right, you can do follow-up calls. You can call on like customer support just to gather information. But I would say when people are making phone calls, uh, more important than the script, like the number one thing that people that will set the call up for success or failure quickly is tone. For example, with executive assistants. By the way, executive assistants are amazing. Treat them as not as someone you need to get through, but someone who could be your friend. You can get a lot of great information from them, and you know have more conversations if you not feel like you're failing constantly. But they will pick up really quickly if they if you sound there's this like sales voice and I don't know if it's like hi Beth yeah, yeah. Uh, how are you today <laughs> whatever there's like this kind of voice that people have and they just hear it right before even it's not the words they can hear the tone yeah but if you really sound more casual and more confident relaxed like a regular person they're more likely to talk to you mm. you know we say too if you're doing a research call 
to kind of investigate or understand who's there, what's where to get pointed to in the right direction. If you sound like a lost lamb, someone who needs help, rather than a confident Mr. Salesperson, yeah. is Bob in? Um, no, he's not. Well, can you tell him Aaron's here? Just ask for help from people. Oh, hey, I'm sorry, like, did I catch you at a bad time? I'm a little bit lost, can you help me please? Like 80% of the time, they will help you. They wanna help you, yeah. yeah. Kind of like the metaphor is if you're on the street and you're asking for directions, right? People like to help other people. They don't like to help assholes though. Yeah. So, and that's what salespeople tend to sound like when they're overly confident. Sure. You know, whenever, it probably used to work, but then once it becomes standard, it stops to, you know, a victim of its own success, then people start to hear that and it doesn't work. And people have been overcalled by salespeople. So, sure. lost lamb. Plus, That's the way to go. That's a good one. I like yeah. that. That's cool. Cold call tip of the day, number one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. I like that. Special thanks to Aaron Ross for doing the podcast. Now you have the tools to scale. Today, we talked about why everyone should have the skill to sell, the secret to nailing the niche, dissecting the ideal customer, why companies stall, and the anatomy of a successful cold call. Oh, and if you want to support ProfitWell on the show, we would greatly appreciate it if you left a five-star review of this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen and watch. The podcast gods tend to like that type of thing, and you know we like to appease the podcast gods. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest-growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions. Subscription.